good morning to you all and welcome to another LSE Kuwait uh, breakfast. I'm delighted to have with me this morning uh, uh, Nia Rosen and uh, Christian Coates Orison. We were going to have Emma Skye with us uh, today, but she's had to take up an appointment at Harvard for other suddenly, and unfortunately, therefore, we don't have her with us today. But uh, you will find that Christian is more than adequate in this, in this role. Uh, let me say something briefly about our, our two speakers. Neil Rosen is uh, probably known to many of you who's with air knowledge in this area. He is a writer, journalist, documentary filmmaker, and fellow at the Center of Law and Security, the NYU School of Law. His newest book, Aftermath, Following the Bloodshed of America's Wars in the Muslim World, is about sectarianism, civil war, occupation, resistance, terrorism, and counterinsurgency from Iraq to Lebanon to Afghanistan. He has spent a long time in these countries. He spent 36 months working in Iraq, four months recently in Afghanistan, and has also worked in Somalia, the Congo, Syria, Jordan, Egypt, Turkey, Pakistan, and Lebanon. His work has appeared in publications such as New York Times Magazine, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The Rolling Stone, and he's a frequent guest of CNN, etc. Christian Coates Orison is one of ours, that is a one of the LSEs. We're delighted to say he's the Kuwait Research Fellow and Deputy Director of the Kuwait Research uh, Program. He holds a PhD from Cambridge University and has just published his first book, Logistics and Politics of the British Campaigns in the Middle East, 1914 to 22, an absolutely wonderful work of his history. He has two f- further books appearing this year, Insecure Gulf, coming out shortly. Yes, in February. And The Transformation of the Gulf, uh, Politics, Economics and the Global Order, coming out a little later, which will certainly put him in the centre of the map of debates in the Middle East and the Gulf. His research focuses on the political economy of the Gulf states and Yemen, security trends in Gulf and Iraq, and the changing position of the GCC states in the global order. Both gentlemen on my left and right are real authorities in this area. Neil will speak first for about 15 minutes. Is that right? Followed by Christian. Thank you very much. Just let me know when I've hit 15 minutes. Good morning. Um, I just got back from Iraq a few days ago, so I imagine it's going to be a question and answer period. Yes. Um, but I'll summarize my view of where Iraq stands today. Uh, the, uh, I'm sort of an optimist on Iraq in the sense that I think the worst is over at least, um, even though I made a career of predicting and then reporting about how terrible things were. Um, but since mid-2008, I think everything has changed, and the, the civil war is over and um, cannot resume, I, I argue, um, and Iraq is actually quite stable in the sense that the system is stable. Um, so my optimistic take on Iraq is that the best case scenario is a situation like Mexico or, or Pakistan where you have a very strong central regime, very brutal, corrupt, um, with the trappings of democracy and representation. Um, and But no, nobody can overthrow it. Um, very strong security forces, um, very brutal, maybe engaging in torture, but able to suppress any, any potential threat to the system. While on the street you have, as you do in Mexico and other places, terrible violence, which just becomes normal, unfortunately, and people work around it and live with it. And you also have a growing disparity between a, a small class of emerging uh, rich and uh, large masses of poor who are 
sort of outside the system. Um, and to understand why the civil war ended, you have to sort of go back to when it started. The, the people who fear what will happen after the Americans leave are, tend to be people who think the Americans were instrumental in stopping the violence, whereas I think it was actually Iraqi dynamics which, which uh, were primarily responsible for the reduction of the violence. The civil war began in 2003. Um, there's a sort of a dominant narrative, at least in the U.S., that things were just going sort of poorly in the occupation. It was muddled and incompetent, and then in 2006 you had the Samara Shrine bombing, the Shia Shrine north of Baghdad, and then suddenly all hell broke loose, and Sunnis and Shias started killing each other. And it took a genius general called Petraeus to come in and save the day, just like he's going to save us in Afghanistan. Um, but the Civil War began, I argue, in 2003, albeit on a lower scale. Um, almost from the, be from the beginning, we, uh, in April 2003, you could hear the chatter of gunfire all night long as different Iraqis were selling scores. It wasn't yet... Americans fighting Iraqis, it was still Iraqis fighting Iraqis. Um, and the real beginning of displacement was actually the destruction of Fallujah in 2004. The, uh, Fallujah, the first battle of Fallujah in the spring of 2004 was in a way the height of Sunni-Shia unity in Iraq, and I was very optimistic at that moment. You had, I saw Mahdi army fighters in Fallujah supporting Sunni resistance fighters, Sunni resistance fighters in Najaf, uh, elsewhere, supporting Shia anti-occupation fighters. It was sort of the end of the American dream for Iraq, but it was also, I thought, a moment where uh, Sunni and Shia fighters could give Iraq some kind of bloody rebirth nationalist myth, the way that the 1920 revolution had been used um, and recreated as some kind of Sunni-Shia popular struggle against the British, even though it was primarily Shia tribesmen who were involved in it. Um, so I was hopeful at the time of uh, the first Battle of Fallujah that this uprising against occupation, terrible as it was for the Americans, would uh, end this, the sense that there were, you had Shia collaborators and um, Sunni um, sort of uh, Sunni victims of, of the new order. Uh, that wasn't to be in part because Shias were growing tired of a daily barrage of Zarqawi kind of anti-Shia attacks emanating from Sunni areas like Fallujah and elsewhere. Um, so by the time the Americans destroyed Fallujah in late 2004, you didn't see any Shias really going to the assistance of their brethren in Fallujah. In fact, you saw many Shias, Sadrists and those who were part of the, the, the Shia wing of the resistance, um, feeling like Fallujah deserved it. So you had a few hundred thousand people from Fallujah fleeing into western Baghdad and they began to displace Shias in West Baghdad who fled to East Baghdad, and they displaced Sunni, Sunnis in, in East Baghdad. And late 2004 was the real beginning of the um, population exchanges and the, the cleansing of neighborhoods. Um, Shias still felt quite weak, and there was a sort of pathological fear of the Ba'athists coming back and Wahhabis uh, to taking over. Um, but by 2005, you had the elections January 30, 2005, you began to see the emergence of a much more aggressive Shia counterinsurgency campaign, separate from whatever the Americans were doing. Um, you had a Monaco phenomenon. Monica, every, Iraqis have a nickname for every, uh, every vehicle, a duck, a dolphin. Um, Nissan Pathfinders were issued to the Iraqi Ministry of Interior by the Americans. Uh, the nickname for Nissan Pathfinder is Monica because it has a wide rear end, like Monica Lewinsky. So you had... Ministry of Interior Monica is going into Sunni neighborhoods 
with guys dressed in weird uniforms, AK-47 sticking out the window, picking up Sunni men randomly, and two weeks later you'd find them dumped in, in an empty lot with power drill marks in their body. And that was the beginning of a very aggressive Shia campaign to punish Sunnis in general. Um, you didn't yet see a Shia victory, but by 2006, meeting with Sunni resistance leaders in Baghdad, Syria, Jordan, they were, their tone was very different, and they were saying, we lost, we lost, we miscalculated when we handed over Iraq to the Shias in 2003 by boycotting uh, the, the occupation of a mistake which resembled what, uh, how Shias thought about their own um, 1923 sort of boycott of the British-imposed order in Iraq. And it was that Sunni realization that they had lost, so at least Sunni militia realization, which led to the awakening phenomenon, Sunni militias deciding with the Americans, hoping that they could somehow regroup and then fight the Shias, the Iranians in their minds, who were in control of the government. Um, so I thought the awakening phenomenon was a, was a horrible idea because here you have a civil war with militias and you're creating more militias. And these aren't mercenary militias. These are militias who are ideologically committed to overthrowing the government. Um, but it was the militiamen who miscalculated because they, could never, they were very effective when they were underground fighters. But once you were part of the awakening system, you were now public. Everybody knew your address, your name, your biometric data was in the possession of the Americans and, and the Shia-dominated security forces. So it was very easy to wipe out the awakening forces um, after they, they had served their, their purpose. And these days, every awakening leader I've ever known is either dead, in jail, in exile, or asking me for a visa to the U.S., and they're not getting visas to the U.S. because of uh, anti-terrorism laws. So it's very much a spent force. Um, even though every once in a while you'll see a journalist writing an article about how the awakening movement is threatening to go back to violence if they're not part of the government. Um, on the ground, you don't see them. They're emaciated. And then you had, so you had a Sunni ceasefire, which took out the majority of the Sunni fighters, um, and the Shia ceasefire, about a year later, the Mahdi army ceasefire. In a way, this, this, uh, these were both reactions to the surge, not to the surge itself, but to the announcement of the surge, in that Sunnis realized if the Americans are actually increasing their commitment, perhaps we can strike a deal with them, and we won't get wiped out as we have in the past when we went to fight al-Qaeda. You had various Sunni resistance uprisings against al-Qaeda uh, during the occupation in 2004 and 2005, but the al-Qaeda guys would wipe out the, the uh, more mainstream Iraqi Sunni fighters. This was different because the Americans actually backed their Sunni collaborators for the first time and protected them. Um, the Mahdi army, by 2007, controlled Baghdad, and they realized the Americans are going to be focusing on Baghdad um, during a surge. Better to lie low and wait that surge out. They, too, ended up miscalculating because they underestimated the abil ability of Prime Minister Maliki to... Uh, to crush them, which he did in the spring of 2008, in a move that surprised even the Americans. Brutally, um, at the expense of women and children and many civilians, wiping them out with American support. Um, the Americans were caught off guard when Maliki initiated his campaign against the Mahdi army, but they kind of came to his rescue with Navy SEALs and helicopters. But it was Maliki who got received credit for wiping out the Shia militia, um, and even won begrudging support from Sunnis who had hated him until then. So you now basically had the two main militia forces in Iraq wiped out. I'm simplifying it for the sake of brevity. Um, but the Iraq of today, you no longer have any movement which is really contesting the system. 
as we've seen from the elections. Everybody just wants to be part of the system and divvy up the spoils, be part of the patronage network. Um, so the Sudras, for example, are these days are kind of a boring movement, um, no longer revolutionary. They're still the only grassroots popular movement in Iraq, but not really revolutionary. And it's hard, it's hard to be anti-establishment when you've been part of the establishment. You can't be anti-occupation when, for all intents and purposes, the occupation is over. Um, and you yourself are, are implicated in some of the worst offenses of the civil war and, and the corruption of the government. So it's a much less uh, interesting movement. It doesn't threaten the regime in any way. It's much better to have them part of the system. They've always wanted to be part of the system, the Sudrists, uh, since 2003. Part of the reason why they turned to violence was because the establishment Shia clergy wanted them out of the system and prevented them from being part of the initial sort of inter-governing council. Um, now, there was a lot of concern about lack of integration of Sunnis into the system. The surge was meant to uh, sort of create this window of peace where you could have political reconciliation. Um, you had a decline in violence, as I said, although primarily for Iraqi factors. The Shias won the civil war. Sunnis lost, just to, to, to simplify it. So you did have a certain reduction in violence from the terrible level, levels of 2007 to the just very bad levels of today. But you didn't have any real political reconciliation after that, and you just didn't really need to. Maliki can be as authoritarian as he wants, and there's not really much anybody can do about it. He's very skillfully uh, placed his people throughout the security forces, the police and the army, to prevent any kind of coup. Um, and there's a very interesting phenomenon in Arabic. It's called dubata damaj. The uh, mixed officers, the uh, um, so planted officers, um, these are officers in the police and army who have received their position uh, not because they've gone through the academy or whatever, but because uh, they're part of the Dawa party or they've been part of Iraqi Hezbollah. They fought Saddam in the marshes. Um, so your average uh, Iraqi soldier officer will complain that these guys are illiterate um, or haven't been to the academy. But they are planted throughout the security forces and are very effective at uh, sort of being loyal to Maliki and to the new order. Um, my concern was if Maliki actually wasn't in the regime, then, then these people would be a threat. If you had an Alawi government, then this, the fact that security forces had been sort of taken over by Maliki's people would have been a problem. But there was never really any chance of Maliki not being in, in charge, because you're not going to give up power if you have it. Um, and he's been very skillful at uh, establishing sort of an extra legal infrastructure loyal to him. Um, which is not necessarily a bad thing, at least in terms of Iraqi stability. If Alawi had become prime minister, um, the Iranians would have had a great reason to undermine Iraq. It would have been seen as a Saudi victory and a greater threat to Iran. Maliki doesn't like Iran, and he wasn't Iran's number one choice, but at least they can live with him. Um, Turkey as well. Uh, Turkey was very much backing Ayat Alawi's. The, the Turkish role in Iraq in general is interesting and not uh, very well known but I don't have time for that here. Um, so while I think the regime is very stable, life in Iraq is terrible. You have a huge disparity between the nouveau riche class and the uh, poor people who uh, are outside the system, have no access to services of any kind. Um, on the street, there are assassinations with silenced pistols every day, with sticky bombs and magnetic bombs, um, very good for assassinating individuals. Um, less catastrophic than your average suicide attack. We still have these catastrophic suicide attacks, obviously. I don't want to minimize that. But they almost seem to have no strategic impact in the last couple of years. 
Um, and it's hard to understand what the point is. If it's, if it's just about killing Shias, um, then at least you can see that. But it's not undermining a system in any way, or un- even undermining confidence in security forces. I think there is a potential for social unrest. Uh, we saw some riots over the summer, and obviously we're seeing in the Arab world in general um, some uh, great deal of social unrest as a result of social injustice. Um, but it, the security forces in Iraq really are very pervasive. There's no neighborhood which is controlled by militias, no, no longer any checkpoints controlled by militias. So the way Iraq looks today, I think, is very much the way Iraq will look in five years, which is unfortunate. It's not a success story, but at least it's more stable than it was a couple of years ago. Thanks very much. Many thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, I'm going to look at the role of the Gulf states and the impact of the Iraq war on Gulf security. And if there are two main things I'm going to say, the first is that the war was not as destabilizing on the Gulf as it was initially predicted or feared, certainly by comparison with previous conflicts in the Gulf. And secondly, if anything, many of the destabilizing flows were in fact in the other direction, from the Gulf into Iraq. Um, Of course, the multiple and overlapping conflicts in Iraq did have an impact on the Gulf and on the Gulf states. Uh, Their role as the logistical and administrative hubs for the multinational coalition did expose the regimes to uh, popular levels of discontent. Uh, In Saudi Arabia, for example, there was an opinion poll published shortly before the invasion showing that 97% of respondents were adamantly opposed to any cooperation with the Americans in the invasion of Iraq. There were demonstrations against the war in most of the Gulf countries. Those in Bahrain were particularly prolonged and, by Gulf standards, well attended. So policymakers in the GCC in 2003 were in a bit of a dilemma. They had to balance their security ties with the U.S. and and political ties as well with high levels of popular opposition to the war. It prompted many to publicly distance themselves from the invasion while privately and tacitly providing support uh, and degree of encouragement to the effort to oust Saddam Hussein's regime. This was a security dilemma which on, at times was stretched towards uh, uh, uncomfortable levels, prompting, for example, in 2007, King Abdullah of Saudi Arabia to denounce the illegitimate foreign occupation in an unprecedentedly public and strong display of uh, discontent with uh, their main security guarantor, the United States. So in that environment, the Gulf states might have expected more significant levels of blowback, both by virtue of their geographical proximity to Iraq and to their leadership's political and military alliances, ties with Washington. Notably, this did not happen. The Gulf states implemented a combination of hard security measures that ensured they remained relatively immune to the direct cross-border overspill of the multiple sources of insecurity, such as sectarian conflict, uh, large-scale refugee flows, and also direct terrorist attacks emanating from Iraq. Uh, in particular, the direct targeting of the Gulf states was minimal when compared, for example, to the Iran-Iraq war, when Kuwait came under rocket and mortar attack for almost the entire duration of the conflict. Uh, its merchant fleet and oil installations were repeatedly attacked, and it suffered an upsurge in a campaign of political assassination and political violence, uh, with many attacks being linked back to Iraq and Iran. Saudi Arabia and Bahrain were also targeted uh, ideologically and militarily during the Iran-Iraq war, 
uh, Saudi Arabia even shot down an Iranian F-4 fighter in 1984 that had strayed into the kingdom's territory. And of course, the 1990-91 Gulf conflict obviously had a direct impact on Kuwait, but also on Saudi Arabia, when Iraqi forces briefly occupied the town, Saudi town of Ras al-Kafiji in January 1991, the most direct military threat to the kingdom at that point since its foundation in 1932. And of course, the indirect consequences of King Fahad's decision to allow the uh, stationing of U.S. troops in Iraq and their, in, in Saudi Arabia and their retention after the conclusion of the conflict uh, are well known. Instead, the experience of the 2003 Gulf War and its subsequent uh, course has been that the destabilizing flows of men, money, and influence run in the other direction from the GCC states into Iraq. Between an estimated 1,500 to 3,000 Saudis joined the Sunni insurgency and constituted a significant proportion of the foreign fighters in Iraq. Prominent Saudi clerics issued several high-level, uh, very high-profile uh, statements in 2005-2006 at the height of the sectarian violence, uh, calling on Sunni Muslims around the world to join the insurgency to prevent Shia Muslims from taking control of Iraq and uh, issuing very strong support to the Sunni resistance. Saudi money and influence were also directed to supporting Sunni political aspirations and attempting to further erode the uh, influence of Shia political actors in Iraq. Uh, in Kuwait, members of two uh, terror organizations, the Peninsula Alliance and the Mujahideen of Kuwait, also channeled fighters to the insurgency, taking Kuwaiti security services completely by surprise. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf, smaller Gulf states also provided large amounts of funding to insurgent groups and terror organizations operating within Iraq. The rulers in the Gulf also expressed great alarm at the perceived and actual expansion of Iranian influence within Iraq following the removal of its main counterweight in the Gulf and its consequences or their feared consequences for their own Shia populations. As early as February 2003, Saudi Arabia's foreign minister, foreign minister Saud al-Fazl, warned President Bush that, quote, he would be solving one problem and creating five more if Saddam Hussein was removed by force. In 2005, Prince Saud also stated that the U.S., quote, was handing the whole country over to Iran, Iran without reason. Uh, officials in the GCC increasingly came to view the conflict and the empowerment of Iraq's Shia majority as the major consequence of the overthrow of the Ba'athist regime, also the rise in Iranian influence. The result was vocal and sustained suspicion of Iran's cultivation of extensive ties at state and non-state level, which were seen to provide Tehran with a degree of strategic depth which stoked deep unease within the GCC. So the sectarian lens constituted a powerful filter through which ruling elites throughout the Gulf viewed developments in Iraq. Uh, led by Saudi Arabia, officials deeply distrusted the government led by Nouri al-Maliki, which they suspected at times of being an Iranian proxy, fairly or not, and a source of multiple physical and ideational threats to their own polities. This, in a way, contributed to a self-fulfilling prophecy as the Gulf states' reluctance to increase their own levels of engagement with Iraq enabled Iran to take the lead in reconstruction and development, <clears throat> including the new international airport in Najaf, uh, the creation of a free trade zone around Basra, the signing of multiple cooperation agreements between Iraq and Iran. 
Gulf states solidly backed Ayodhalawi in the elections last year, viewing him as more capable of standing up to perceived Iranian influence, and they now face the challenge of normalizing their relations with the second Maliki government. Uh, one of the more interesting documents recently uh, released by WikiLeaks, in fact, attributed to Iraqi government officials a feeling that Saudi Arabia was leading a Gulf effort to destabilize the Maliki government and uh, that at least parts of the Iraqi government saw Saudi Arabia rather than Iran as constituting the biggest challenge in a post-American Iraq. There are multiple issues that remain unresolved as American forces complete their uh, expected drawdown and uh, tension moves towards post-occupation dynamics in Iraq. Uh, this uncertainty extends to the local and regional implications of Iraq's reintegration into the Gulf security fold, into the political and security frameworks in the Gulf, and of course the future orientation of its military force and posture. A stronger Iraq with a greater sense of national purpose might on the one hand allay GCC unease at the supposed Iranian uh, influence, but it also introduces a new dimension to regional perceptions of threat. In 2008, 2009, as is well known, Maliki was projecting himself as a more nationalist figure, a centralizing degree of political and military power in his office, a creation of a network of advisors and tribal support councils that were seen to bypass official government structures. Uh, to some, these carried uh, ominous overtones of Iraq's dictatorial past. And this agglomeration of centralized power, combined with ongoing instances of sectarianism, or attempts to perpetuate a sectarian political climate, such as the Justice and Accountability Commission's uh, banning of more than 500 largely Sunni or secular candidates ahead of the election last year, further complicated the normalization of relations with the Iraq, uh, between Iraq and its Arab Gulf neighbors. Uh, in Kuwait, in particular, officials remain particularly concerned about Iraq's possible re-emergence as a regional power and about its arms acquisition in particular. Uh, they insist, for example, that any weaponry acquired by the Iraqi military should be defensive. They've had a long experience. Um, relations between Kuwait and Iraq have further been complicated by the payment or demands, continuing demands for payments of Iraqi reparations and compensation arising from the 1990-91 conflict. Uh, un unresolved boundary issues as well. And their difficult resolution highlights the sensitivity of reintegrating Iraq into the regional fold. I think the Kuwaiti government would probably like to have a, a resolution, but this is complicated by the emotiveness of the issue and by the fact that the popular and political opinion in Parliament is adamantly opposed to any concession on these red lines. So American political and military leverage in Iraq, such as it is, means that Baghdad's probably unlikely to pose a hard military threat in the future or at least the foreseeable future. It may instead be that the greater potential danger for the Gulf states is not that Iraq becomes a strong regional power, but that it remains a chronically weak and fragmented state, with posing a continuing challenge to regional security and stability. Um, elements of the Maliki government, as was um, made clear in WikiLeaks, do suspect this to be the desired outcome of the uh, Gulf states' policymaking, or at least parts of Gulf states' policymaking, in order to prevent the Shia-led regime in Baghdad from becoming too powerful. However, a weak Iraq with multiple sources of human insecurity and poor indices of human development cannot be in the long-term interests of the Gulf states. Uh, for example, Iraq has become a conduit for the increasingly lucrative uh, 
global drugs trade from Afghanistan through Iran, uh, then through southern Iraq to Kuwait and Saudi Arabia for onward transit to Europe. So policymakers in in the Gulf will watch with interest, I think, over the next few years as uh, Iraq uh, becomes more of a regional uh, player and uh, the relations are normalized. And finally, are there any lessons learned from the Gulf, for the Gulf states from the occupation of Iraq and subsequent events? Well, one is that they remain, the Gulf states remain dependent on the U.S. for their external security guarantee. However, the GCC at a collective level remains more or less incapable of uh, coming up with a common platform to address shared issues. This has been seen, made clear in Gulf states' dealings with Iran, which remain largely bilateral, and also to a degree with Yemen, in spite of the creation of the Friends of Yemen network uh, that began in 2010. Uh, The other main uh, issue I'll just throw out onto the table is that although regional security structures in the Gulf were remarkably durable in uh, accommodating the occupation of Iraq, uh, certainly much better than many predicted or feared in 2003, uh, it remains an unbalanced system Uh, unhealthily dependent on actions of non-GCC actors, which in the case of the United States and Iran uh, threaten another regional conflict, which for all the insouciance of Gulf rulers as expressed in the WikiLeaks cables and their bring it on bravado, may not leave the region so uh, untouched as the Iraq conflict seems to have done.